Hello, Michelle Laurie here. It's no secret that Australia's property market is out of control these days, but I, for one, can't seem to stop following along. I've become a bit obsessed with it, to be honest. What's up, what's down, and who on earth is paying those prices for those houses? So I want to personally recommend a podcast for you. It's called Real Property. It'll keep you across the latest information on the Australian property market in a clear and easy-to-digest way. Real Property, building a community of more informed property buyers. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning, that it's not suitable for children. And it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast. So Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. I just remember that someone had to drive us to Toowoomba because Dad was too emotional to drive and I remember crying the whole way up and then being given sedatives once I got to Grandma's because I hadn't slept. Um, I just, I didn't really believe it. I think I just went into shock. November 2023 marks the 34th anniversary of the brutal murder of teenager Annette Mason in Toowoomba in Queensland. I was also a Toowoomba teenager at the time. In fact, Annette was just a year younger than me, and I've continued to follow her case throughout my life. I went back to Toowoomba and interviewed Annette's sister, Linda Mason, for one of our earliest episodes of Australian True Crime. That episode is no longer available for download, but we're revisiting the case this week. When I met Linda Mason, she'd been asking for many years for a second inquest into Annette's murder, which was still listed as an unsolved homicide. The Queensland coroner finally agreed to conduct that inquest in 2022, and the evidence was explosive. Before we get to that, though, let's go back to my initial conversation with Linda and to the events of the night of Saturday, November 18, 1989, the night her baby sister, Annette Mason, was murdered. I visited Annette's big sister Linda in her home in southeast Queensland and I'll play our chat for you shortly. But first, I wanted to give you some details that I felt uncomfortable discussing with Linda. The initial inquest into Annette's case heard that she had died from brutal head injuries, believed to have been inflicted in or near her home in the early hours of November 19, 1989. She was seen getting into a taxi in Toowoomba's CBD at around 3.30 that morning. A witness came forward to report having seen a young woman matching Annette's appearance being chased by a man near her home at around 4.15am. At around 2pm that afternoon, a friend found Annette's body under a doona in her bed. There had been no forced entry into the home. The first inquest could not identify a person responsible for Annette's death due to insufficient evidence. 
But since then, there have been numerous hearings held by Queensland's Corruption and Crime Commission that helped narrow the list of persons of interest. A $250,000 reward remains on offer for anyone with information that could lead to a conviction for Annette's death. In December 2017, the Queensland coroner announced that the 1991 inquest into the murder of 15-year-old Annette Mason would be reopened. The crime shocked our community because Annette was living a life that seemed pretty unremarkable when compared to lots of girls her age in our town. We'll talk about the lives we were living at 15 later in this podcast, and I'm sure it will shock some listeners, particularly those who are fully grown adults still living with their parents. Peter Hardwick has covered every development in this case for local newspaper The Toowoomba Chronicle. The main uh, investigating police officer was Brian Ty, and uh, I've done stories with Brian. He's retired now, and he was always... He said that a lot of cops leave retiring and they say that's the one case I wanted to fix. And he, it's the one thing that he wanted to fix up was uh, that one and solve that one. He had suspects. He wanted to run a trial, put these guys on trial, but his superiors at the time said there isn't enough evidence mm. and if we don't get them now, if we don't get them at trial, they'll, they'll never be tried again. And so that was... And I know that frustrated Brian... But he just said, put it in front of the jury, let them decide. But they were, the police were afraid that if they were the guys, they might walk. But So what do we know about the last night of Annette's life? We know that she was out mm. um, to, to meet with friends. She, she didn't get drunk. There was no, no alcohol in her system. No, no. Um, but she went home very late. And also we know that her housemates were away, so she was yeah. to be alone in the house. That's right. And she was walking home. She was seen walking home. Mm-hmm. At once, oh, she's seen to get in a cab first, then she was seen walking. Then some, there is a witness that says he sees a, a, a man with her or someone chasing her or something like that at one stage. Um, but uh, she's definitely, she mustn't have been far from her home when they intervened because she's found in the house, in her home. So they must have, obviously she was at home or the killer or killers knew where she lived because that's where she's been found. Uh, was she sexually assaulted? Well, it's never come out that she was. Okay. It's never... The police have never um, said that she was, whether that's something that they've been hanging on to. I don't know, but after all these years, I don't think they should be hanging on to anything. And, mm. um, then I surely, whatever happened, they, this inquest, hopefully... I'd love to see them name persons of interest. There are persons of interest. There's nothing about that because the police have given us names. And one of those persons of interest has rung me, so I know, and I know he knows he's a person of interest. Uh, what did he ring you to say? Oh, he was complaining that his name was mentioned in a report mm. during a uh, perjury trial in Brisbane, and it was related to the Annette Mason murder. And it was done in Brisbane, and uh, we ran the story. But and he rang me from the coast, complaining that his name had been uh, put out there and all this sort of stuff, and he was carrying on swearing and carrying on and. Um, and I said, oh, you know, I said, mate, I'm quite happy to do a story with you if you want to, you know, protest your innocence and things like that. And and he just said, I'll think about it. I've never heard back from him, and that's a couple of years ago now. But um, but he knows that, that he's one of the names that's been mentioned. Ironically, uh, as he said to me, he said, I've got children, you know. Well, he never got a chance to have children. Mm. And, you know, she'd, be nearly, she'd probably be a grandmother by now. Yeah, so... 
they know, and there's another, I know one of the three that I was told is dead. Uh, another one is getting on, and he, I believe he's just been released from prison. And the third, the guy that ran me, has been in I've covered um, some of his trials over the years. He uh, has been in and out of prison. He's been a violent man in the past. Um, but so... Uh, is the suggestion that the three of them work together or are they separate? No, the suggestion is the three were there together. Right. That's uh, the, the line I was told by one of the investigating officers and and they're as frustrated as anything too. Mm-hmm. Um, it comes down to people who know what happened mm-hmm. and for them to say something. I know that the, there was a, a woman at the time... I was told by one of the investigating officers years ago, he said there's a woman at the centre of it and uh, she, he said that she lived in Harleston and uh, she knew what happened but she's in such fear that she won't say anything. Now she moved in a state but uh, I would have thought the um, coroner could um, summon her to appear and imagine he would but I was told that she holds the key. She and if she speaks, we'll get somewhere, and uh, and that's what it takes. It really takes people to be brave. Now it's a long time to be living in fear. You know, you got to think at the end of the day. There's a young teenage girl who's murdered mm-hmm. and brutally murdered. It's what a horrifying way to go. And she's got family here, mm-hmm. and you know, I talk to her sister often, and it's just you know, it's really it's taken over her life, and uh, it's still hard on them, but. She's as brave as anyone, Linda Mason. She's really got. She's really pushed for this inquest, and hopefully, for her sake and for Annette's sake, that's these people will come forward and say something. Coming up on Australian True Crime, Linda Mason talks about what happens to your life when you finally allow yourself to grieve. But first, how does an inquest come about? We. Petitioned the Attorney General um, for the last two years to get the inquest. Mm-hmm. It was denied twice, and the third time, it, she actually called, sent a car to come and get me to tell me that it was approved, and oh, I just broke down. So we worked so hard towards that. That was the first goal was to get the inquest, and now that we have the inquest, the next goal is let's make this count. So um, let's get a conviction at the end of it because we're we're using um, the laws. I think it's from 1958 because it was under that jurisdiction back then. So we've still got to go by those laws. And under that, um, the coroner has the authority to send somebody up. So are you saying that you have to abide by the laws that were in place at the time of the crime? Correct. Wow, I had so no idea about not, that. Now they've all changed and we, we can't go by those rules. Whereas um, the 1958 Act it means that the, um, the witnesses don't have to speak, uh, but now they do, so they're compelled to give evidence now, whereas... In, in under the act we're using, they don't. Okay, so that's what you're still um, hamstrung by to a certain extent. So the inquest can call witnesses and they can refuse to come or, or just sit there and not speak? Correct. So just... they can just sit there and not speak. So when is the inquest? Uh, I haven't got a set date yet. Uh, that will happen at the end of this month. 
that you'll get the date and what sort of waiting period then do you expect after that will it be this year yeah so i'm hoping it'll be uh before mid-year it'll start quite a quick turnaround hopefully after it's after you're given a date yes it's been nearly a year since the attorney general approved the inquest so um and it was to be finalized before the end of last year so yeah it'll be quick is there anyone that you know of that will be called to to testify do you guys know of any people or persons of interest in the case no um i don't really know of any persons of interest in the case uh personally no but do you know their names have you yeah we've got a list we're gathering a list wow yeah. Who do you gather that with? When you say we, who is we? So uh, we've got a solicitor in Toowoomba. Um, and police? I mean, do you, are you working with police on this or is this just your responsibility? This is now our responsibility. So the police have um, taken a step back now. Wow. So who's, who does the investigating to come up with this list? That would be the lawyers and my barrister. Wow. So the choice of that barrister and that law firm is really important. Yes. I'm going to Toowoomba tomorrow. And um, I haven't been in about five years. And I've just been saying to people that when you leave a place that you grew up, it's in your mind, it's always the same, mm. isn't it? And then you go back and it's startling and sort of upsetting in a way. And you, you know, it's sad, you miss stuff. So what do you remember of Toowoomba at, at the time that Annette was living there in the house? I never saw the house. I never... So me and Annette had moved down to Dad's a few months before that and um, I got a job, but Annette wanted to go back to Toowoomba, so I was going to follow her. Ah. Uh, so I didn't actually see that she'd moved out or anything. So uh, how old were you? I was 17. I guess back then it was a different time. I remember going to the nightclubs trying to get into the powerhouse and rumours at that stage. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, me too, yeah. Um, yeah, it was a different time. It was like it was more... Free, I mm-hmm. guess, for for the young girls there. Um, and also it was still a time when a lot of girls left school after year 10 correct. and got jobs yeah. and got on with their adult lives, yes. which today seems insane. Yeah. But it was definitely an option then, and I knew a lot of girls who took it. Yeah. And Annette was one. And I was one, so I left yeah, right. year 10. Yeah, um, right. After year 10, so... So what did you do with yourself? Because so many of our listeners will be going, that's crazy. But so you're like 15, 16, Mm -hmm. left school. What did you do? I worked at a cafe in Toowoomba there. Yeah. Uh, And then I went down to Dad and started working in construction. Yeah, great. uh, No, actually, I tell a lie. So I went and did a pre-vocational course as a mechanic. Ah. And was offered an apprenticeship, but the money was so crap back then that I was like, no. When I could have got... 
like five times the amount to do construction. Yeah, right. Great. So, yeah. So you just got on with your adult life. Yes. And started, you know, having money, which the rest of us back at school were so jealous of. Because suddenly you were the girls who were like, had nice clothes and jewellery <laughs> and um, had your charm bracelets <laughs> and <laughs> saving for your cars yes. and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Was it great? It was. It was good. Uh but the, the the thing I remember mostly about Toowoomba, I guess, is is my grandparents' houses and yeah. and the red dirt. So your parents were broken up. You went to your dad's. Mm-hmm. Also, around this time, your mum got a job at the Goldie, didn't she? Yes, at the Gold Coast. Yes. So she was going there, and I, I read that she was very very worried about leaving Annette behind. Yeah, mum and Annette were always really close. Um, and I think just at that time, Annette was hitting a rebellious stage. So she wanted to be out on her own and um, do the things that other teenagers were doing, even though the girls that she was with are a bit older than her. So they were very my age. Uh-huh. Uh, and so she wanted to fit into these groups where she could, she could act a bit more mature than she actually was. Didn't we all? Mm. Yeah. So she said, I'm staying in Toowoomba. This is where my friends are. This is where my life is. I've left school anyway. So, yeah. and she moved into a share house. Yeah. So mum wanted to live with grandma because mum grandma was in Toowoomba, but Annette and grandma were fighting at the time. So she said no, but this share house was just across the road from where Annette was working. So she was working at Bilo at Clifford Gardens there. Yeah. And the house was directly across the road. And mum said that she went and asked the neighbours and talked to the girls that lived there and talked to people that knew the girls. And they all said that it was fine and, and you know, they were lovely. And so, yeah, she, under duress, I think, she let us stay there um, and, uh, with the proviso that she'd call mum and that every weekend mum would pick her up. Oh, your mum was going to drive back to Toowoomba every weekend. And yeah, so she was actually meant to come and pick her up that weekend, but uh, Annette had called her during the week to tell her she was going camping with some other people, uh, and these are trusted friends that she was going camping with, so mum allowed that, but um, plans changed, and she didn't go, so the, the guys went camping without her, and uh, she was left there. Yeah. So uh, what happened then that you know... Well, what, from what I know, uh, she was with the girls in the house and they all were going out to the normal hotel drinking and then they went to a party. And this was more for, I think this was a footy club doing. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so, right. Um, it was a lot of older footy players. And okay, so like a barbecue kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I think she went back to the pub then and... Um, she had a few drinks until it closed, and then she went home in a taxi. Um, do you know if she was very drunk or...? She had... There was no um, alcohol in the system. Wow. No. no so, so she was just out and about being social yeah, and having she fun. she was meant to be meeting people, so everywhere she'd show up to meet people, they wouldn't show, and then she'd show up, go to the next place to meet the next person, and they wouldn't show. So all of her girlfriends would say, like, meet me at one, and she'd go that one, and, yeah, it was just... Uh, yeah, circumstances were just not going her way that night. So, um, yeah, she ended up going home in a taxi alone. Um, as far as we know, she got it, she made it into the house, and we don't quite know what happened after that, but she wasn't found until 2 p.m. the next day. By who? By um, one of the girls that lived there. Her friend had come to drop some shoes off. Yeah, and found her. The friend did? Yeah. Wow, so... <clears throat> 
so you were in Brisbane with your dad, was it? No, um, Nara, <clears throat> New South Wales. Oh, okay, a long way away. Yeah. Um, when did you find out what had happened? It was a f- few hours after she was found. So my uncle went to identify her and then he called us. Um, and dad just kind of dropped the phone and I picked it up and said, you know, what's going on? And it was weird because that day me and dad well, and my brother, we were all wearing black and we went down to the hotel for lunch. Um, it was a Sunday. We had Sunday lunch down at the pub uh, and we we're all wearing black and someone said to us, whose funeral are you going to? And we didn't realise until that afternoon that, you know, she was already gone. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I just remembered that someone had to drive us to Toowoomba because Dad was too emotional to drive. And I remember crying the whole way up. And then being given sedatives once I got to Grandma's because I hadn't slept. Um, and I just I didn't really believe it. I think I just went into shock. And I don't think I wanted to believe it. I don't think I grieved at all until maybe two years ago. So... Wow. Whenever Annette was mentioned, I'd just leave the room. I just couldn't face it, I guess. Wow. Until Dad asked me to do this because um, he wanted to see some resolution before he goes. Um, once he asked me, I said yes, and then it kind of, I had to actually start feeling. Um, yeah, it was it was really difficult decision, but, um, you know, once I start something, I won't stop until... I get what I want pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Um, can you remember those first days back in Toowoomba? Um, it was all real a blur. I remember that they were going to see Annette and um, I said I wanted to go because I wanted to make sure it was here. Mm. Um, and then they... I had some sedatives and I, I was asleep and they all, my dad went to see her. And when I woke up, I found out they'd already been and I was really upset. I'm like, it's not here, I just want to make sure. And they took me separately and, and, and I got to see her. Um, wow. But basically it didn't really look like her at all because I guess she'd had the autopsy at that stage and, you know, she was just like a piece of meat lying there. It was... It was it was um it's not really the way I wanted to remember her. How do you remember her? How do you remember your little sister? I remember her as being really shy. She's like a little lamb, she used to just follow me around. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, really, really shy, um, quiet, and, you know, she was pretty much, she was everyone's favourite, you know. <laughs> we go to the grandparents and she was the favourite, and I used to get a bit jealous because I was a middle child, so I have middle child syndrome, and Annette was the youngest for quite a, quite a number of years before Kevin came along. Um, but whenever it was her birthday, they'd always seem to be family there, and they'd all give her gifts, and that mother, they come, no one has <laughs> nothing. Mm. Um but yeah, and she, I always remember she always looked up to me, like she was always wanted to be with me and my friends and I don't know, she was just, 
even everyone at school just said, you know, she was so quiet, she was studious, she was, she always excelled at everything. Um, so she was always winning awards and, yeah. And her school photo that the that was used and in the paper and stuff at the time really struck me because she just looked like all of us. Mm. You know, we all looked the same, of course, as exactly. kids at that age do. We all had the same hairdo and the same yeah. freckles across our nose and being roughly around the same age as her. Yeah, I thought, God, she just looks like me or anyone. And we were all going sure. to the same places and we were all doing the same stuff. Yeah, so I think that photo was like two years before she died and in the last two years she did mature a lot and she did look older than her 15 years. Yeah, right. Uh, but, you know, inside she was still 15. Mm. So how did you, um, I mean, do you remember when you left Toowoomba again? Do you remember, I mean, those horrible first days and um, and then what? Then then what did you do? Did you go back to Nowra with your dad and back to work? No, I, I, I think I did for a little while and I just, I left and went back to Toowoomba. I remember uh, living in Toowoomba with mum um, until, and I was up there when my, my brother was killed which was six months after Annette. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. Oh, so that's terrible. How was, was he killed? He was killed in a car accident going out to um, Oki. Oh, no. So um, I remember the police coming to my door because mum was away that weekend and they showed up to tell me that um, he had been involved in a fatal accident and I didn't know what fatal meant. So I just said, oh, so which hospital is he at? And they said, oh, you don't understand, he's, he's dead. And I just went, I couldn't fathom that. Within six months, I'd lost my two closest siblings, basically. Um, and then I had to go around to grandma's and tell her about that. So we did. We stayed in Toowoomba for a while and got through, well, didn't really get through that, but, um, yeah, well, we had to, you know, stay for the funeral and, and everything, and then I moved back down to Dad. Did, how did the investigation seem to be going in the early days? I didn't really have much to do with it. It was all, mum was, uh, you know, she was main contact back then. So from what I understand, they, um, the, I, from what I understand, the original investigator, it was his first homicide. Right. So I don't know if, you know, he covered all bases or if, he had somebody to lean on to talk to about what he should be doing. Mm-hmm. But I just don't know if there's, there was, you know, gaps made back then. And I think he knows himself that there was there was stuff that was left out. Um, mm-hmm. Are you still in touch with him? Yeah, I still talk to him mm-hmm. um, and, and Brian Ty. So there were the two original investigators. And Brian, to this day, he's retired. He still comes to every meeting I have. Um, he wants to see justice just as much as I do. Mm. It's always wanted him. But, yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't know. I guess I don't know what they should be doing. In the best. I just wish, you know, we'd know, Dan, what we know today with DNA and everything. Yeah, you yeah. Because back then it was, you know, a blood type. It was no DNA evidence. Yeah. Um, was there DNA to be tested then? Was there, did you know anything about that? I, I don't know. I haven't seen any DNA results or any of the 
things that were ever tested. I know that um, about a year ago, the police had said that they sent some more stuff for forensic testing. Okay. But um, I don't know what come out of it. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, you know, when, when does a, a case like this start to feel unsolved? When does it transition for the family from, okay, the police are investigating to, is this ever going to get mm. resolved? I think even after the first few years, you know, you expect something like this to be over quickly. You expect yeah. within the first few months to a year that someone's going to be, you know, held accountable. Um, and once it gets over two years and then five and then after ten, it's like, oh, you know, what's going to happen? But then you read cases of 50-year-old cases that have come yeah, absolutely. and they've been solved. So I don't know. I just don't know personally how much longer we could have held out. Um it was it was just starting to get cruel, like really cruel. After twenty eight years. Yeah. Absolutely. So how did you talk to your kids about Annette when you were finally ready to do that? How do you tell your children what happened to their auntie? I think they were nearly adults when I finally, you know, when it all came about and, and before then I would say to my oldest daughter, you know, you look, you remind me of Annette, you look like Annette. Um, but she didn't really understand what happened. I didn't really go into any details until this whole thing came about, the whole justice campaign, and, and they were actively involved, you know, coming along to our parades and walks through the city. And um, So yeah. did they know that their auntie had been murdered or did they just know that she had died and it wasn't to be spoken about, do you think, as younger kids? What I think that's the second thing. So I'm, okay. I think they knew that Annette was their auntie, but they didn't know how she died or didn't ask or it was a no subject. It's amazing how this can happen in families, yeah. that you just know not to ask things, isn't it? Yeah. Judging by how upset mum gets if it comes up or whatever. Yeah. Wow. So when you told them, I mean, what, what was their reaction? It's unbelievable, as unbelievable as it was for you when you first heard the news. It must have been unbelievable for them too. Yes, that's that's right. And I remember um, travelling to Toowoomba and, and showing them the grave and, and that was the first time we'd really ever been. Um, and I broke down and I think they could see how upset that, you know, it makes me. Um, so then I kind of think that that's when they, they copped on that. It's... It, this is really something really devastating that happened. Also, Toowoomba was a very small town at that stage, so it is. It's that seemed unbelievable as well that there could be so much mystery around this, didn't it? It was like, mm-hmm. but everyone knows everyone. Everyone mm-hmm. gossips. Everyone knows everything that's going on. Yeah, and that's crazy. That's the crazy thing is whenever a name is mentioned regarding who Annette knew in that last week of her life, because that's when she moved into the house a week before this happened. Mm. Um, people she met I'd never heard of and I'm like how is that possible in Toowoomba I knew pretty much everyone Mm. Um, and you know I'd be they said what who is this person I don't know I've never heard of them and this whole crowd that I knew nothing about um, had come into her life and um, that makes me sad to know that you know the people she spent the last week of her life with as, as people that I didn't know um, and so I couldn't you know, help. Um, I know I always curse myself because I think to this day that if I was around, nothing would have happened to her. I would have protected her with my life and I wouldn't have, you know, she wouldn't have been alone. 
Yeah, but she would have been alone at some time. Some, I mean, because you're individuals, and you know, I know that you know again intellectually. Yes. Yeah, this is not your fault or anyone's fault apart from the perpetrators. Exactly. But I can understand there must be guilt around that. Mm. I can't imagine how your mum has felt over the years. Yeah. And the flatmates, the housemates even. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I've spoken to them all and they all feel the same. You know, they felt deeply saddened that, you know, something happened to someone so close to, um, you know, it could have been any one of them yeah. that was in that house that night. Um, and it happened to be Annette. So, um, and I don't know, mum... Uh, she was she feels guilt she feels a lot of guilt over it um and i said to her you know there's no one to blame except the person that did this yeah people need to stop victim shaming absolutely um we're yeah. the victims in this we don't do anything wrong no and neither did annette no no there's one person at fault correct um god i hope they um figure out who it was and is um how, how are your parents, how, how have they coped over the years with this? It's extraordinary. I don't think anyone has. I think yeah. once this happened, um, our family kind of just split up yeah. and it was never the same. So Christmases were never the same and, you know, we never met up for birthdays. I actually moved over to Ireland a, a year after that. Um, wow. And stayed over there for seven or eight years. And, and we all just went our separate ways and tried to do the best we could. Did you, did you tell anyone that you met in Ireland about Annette? No. No. When I brought it out on Facebook, when this campaign started, nobody even knew. That. There was How long ago? That's two years ago. Two years. Wow. Um, and there's so many people were commenting saying, I never knew this about you. Because I was always the goose I guess I was always the joker having fun and um covered up a lot wow yeah. no one not even the closest people to me knew so where did you get support I didn't I actually um I get, I get support now from my dad um and I'll talk to him but I didn't really have a support network when it all kicked off mm. Um, and I didn't plan on it being so hard. Um, I guess I didn't plan on the feelings and everything coming forward and, and the whole grieving process. I didn't plan for that, and that came as a shock, and, and it really affected my whole life at that time. You know, I had to drop back work, and mm. I wasn't sleeping. I was having nightmares, and yeah, I wasn't coping real well. Mm. So, um, you know, we know that the word closure is stupid or it doesn't really, you know. It doesn't exist. No, and it can't bring (laughs) it back. Um, But do you think it will make a big difference to you personally if you know who's responsible and you see see them pay a penalty? Yes. So um, I think it will make a difference to me if I can see somebody... I can't really I I know it's a whole justice campaign I know that justice is that they serve time Um, I'm just kind of split because I see so much injustice on not only Annette but everywhere at the moment that I'm just so worried that I get a tap on the hand and you know this 
you know, this person meant everything to me and, and if I if this slips again I don't know, like I know that I will cope and we'll move forward if something happens, but if it doesn't, that's what I'm scared of. Yeah. Wouldn't blame me because you've you've made a decision two years ago to walk through this that you've been putting off for 28 years. Um, yeah, I can understand why you'd be fearful about it not leading anywhere. Yeah, I think this is kind of a last-ditch effort for the whole family. Um, and that pressure... You know, I feel because I put on myself as well. It's yeah. like you know, sometimes I think, what if nothing comes out of it? You know, not that I've wasted two years because I would never think of it like that. But I just don't know how I cope. I, I think it's going to take a, a terrible toll if you know we don't get justice there, or if we don't get somebody convicted. Mm. This person could be walking around the streets, you know, how many other people have they taunted, you know, yep. abused, you know. At the start, it, the, the um, inquest was put off because it wasn't in the in public's interest and I just went, well, why wouldn't it be, you know, this person is on the street still. How is that not in the public interest? Yeah, that's bizarre. But, um, yeah, no, she's, she's self-sense. And she said she knew I wasn't going to give up. And so I said from the start, I'll do whatever it takes to get um, closure for, well, as close as closest closure we can get uh, in this life. But, um, yes. And life goes on, and now you're a grandma. That's it. That is so wonderful. Little grandbaby. Yeah. Does that feel wonderful? I mean, after the two years you've had, um, to have a baby in the family? It does. Like, she's so cute. And, um, it's nice to have a little bub again. Yeah. In the family. Yeah, yeah you've got a beautiful family. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, no, I love my family. I mean, that... Uh, is actually putting a lump in my throat that like through all of your denial that you've you've is the way that you've coped would that be fair to say yes for a long time you've still managed to uh create such a quite a big loving family that's really beautiful yeah um how have you done that i think it's because of the denial so i think that the blocking it out um you know, it could have gone two ways. I yeah. could have been a drug addict on the streets and I'd have every right to be that. Yeah. But I decided that I, I didn't want that for myself, that I wanted, I want. I knew I wanted, not long after that, I wanted a family and um, I wanted somebody to love again because I'd lost the closest people to me mm. um, and I wanted close people again, I guess. So that's the family. It's incredibly gutsy to... Um, fill your life with people you love again after you've lost them yes people so close to you you're a brave woman (laughs) you are undeniably a very brave chick thank you so much i'll let you go love your families as i said earlier the mason family did get their second inquest in 2022 it was delayed for dna testing in April, but by then, it already seemed to have provided all the answers they needed to finally get justice for Annette. 
This is how Brisbane's Seven News reported the story on the evening of the last day of evidence. They've fought for justice for three decades. Now the family of murdered Toowoomba teenager Annette Mason finally has some answers. A second inquest into the 15-year-old's brutal death helping to bring closure. A caring, loving, innocent young girl, 15-year-old Annette Mason, was bludgeoned to death in her Toowoomba home in 1989. She never got to experience kids or a family or a marriage or even a career. Hadn't even begun to live. For decades, her family fought for a second inquest. It began in 2018 and after several delays, concluded today. After 33 years, I think we've got our answers. I'll do it again a thousand times to get what we got this week. The final witnesses, two retired police officers who led the investigation into Annette's murder. Brian Ty telling the coroner he has no doubt in his mind that Alan McQueen is the main suspect. One of Queensland's most notorious criminals, McQueen was convicted in 1994 for bashing another prisoner to death with gym weights. Mr Ty, you said that you've always believed that Alan McQueen murdered Annette Mason? Not always, but... Um... Eventually, I came to that conclusion. But you have always believed that it was Alan McQueen? And others. Graham Roog was the first lead investigator. He was listening when Alan McQueen and his brother were in the watch house being covertly recorded and overheard McQueen say, just stick to what mum told us to say. While the end of the inquest has brought closure for the Mason family, it hasn't ended their fight for justice. We want to get someone charged. The coroner will deliver his findings in coming months. Rosanna Kingson, 7 News. Unbelievably, though, over a year and a half later, there have still been no charges laid in the matter of the homicide of Annette Mason. After the initial suspension of the inquest for DNA testing, it was delayed indefinitely due to COVID-19. And now, on the 34th anniversary of Annette's murder, her family is still waiting for the results of those DNA tests, for the inquest to resume, for coroner Terry Ryan to hand down his findings, and to hear whether or not the DPP thinks there's enough there to charge anyone. Speaking to the Toowoomba Chronicle this week about the last 18 months, Linda Mason said, the waiting has taken a further toll on my family, added to the stress we've all had to go through over the last 34 years. Mum's been sick for so long, but I think she's hanging in there for an outcome to the inquest. My family is falling apart. Thank you to our guest today, Linda Mason. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 13 9276 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week.